This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 24, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The struggle over the freedom of speech at universities is one that even now isn't particularly well understood. In the new book, Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech, author Keith Whittington argues that the university has a special role to foster tolerance and the free exchange of ideas. And contrary to popular opinion, young people aren't special when it comes to support for free expression. Why is the freedom of speech valuable in a university? And and what more broadly, what do you view as the role of a modern university? Yeah, so I think modern universities fundamentally are committed to um, trying to advance human knowledge and then uh, communicate um, what they've what they've learned. And for both those tasks. Um, Having robust free speech is um, critical. Um, You need to be able to um, uh, ask questions that people find difficult. You need to be able to question things people take for granted um, and and see how well those ideas hold up. Um, And you need to be able to um, uh, teach um, and also communicate scholarship to each other um, in a way that will um, wind up talking about controversial ideas uh, in, in various ways as well. And so so even for that very core function of just doing scholarship and teaching, um, uh, robust protections of speech are, are pretty essential. And, and there's some qualifications to that, and, but we group it under the idea of academic freedom. But it's also true that campuses have become the home for lots of public debate. So students on campus um, and outside speakers come to campus uh, in order to articulate ideas and and, and talk seriously um, about um, important issues um, of the day. And universities have played that role for 100 years uh, in American society. Um, and, and that's a little different than what scholars are doing on campus. Um, but that's also a crucial part of what modern universities do. And free speech is really important to that. Uh, you said that this generation, uh, I, guess, I suppose millennials are the ones in college right now, are they're not special with regard to support for free speech because we, we, you know, we see a lot of survey data and we hear a lot of things about how young people uh, are supporting free speech at much lower rates than uh, previous generations have been. Uh, how do you arrive at the uh, the idea that they're not special? Because that, that came as something of a surprise to me. Yeah, so... So I think the surveys have been a little tricky on this, so that we, we, but we're gathering data on what students um, these days uh, think about free speech and other kinds of civil liberties. Um, and certainly um, some of, that, of those reports are troubling, um, that students are – uh, our, our college-aged um, uh, Americans, I shouldn't necessarily say they're all not only college students because a lot of these surveys are just um, populating people or um, surveying people um, of that age. Um, but but students are um, uh, not as supportive of free speech um, as we might like. Some of them are willing to um, advocate um, uh, even using uh, extreme tactics like violence to um, suppress speech um, uh, they don't like. So there are some very worrisome features um, that some students um, uh, are willing to articulate. But um, most students – um, uh, value free speech. And most students say they value free speech. Most students say that they um, uh, think we all tolerate um, uh, ideas that they find offensive or controversial or dangerous. Um, and that's true even if they're confronted with relatively extreme uh, ideas that they uh, find very discomforting. And But but there's a fraction of them that, that they may say, well, I like free speech in the abstract, but then you start asking them about specific examples of free speech and, and they start um, backing away and qualifying. 
And what's notable about that is that that's been true of lots of other Americans as well. So um, Americans who were surveyed in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s and 1980s and 1990s all did this exact same thing. That They also said, um, well, I value free speech in the abstract. And then you confront them with specific examples um, or specific kinds of speech and they start um, backtracking. How has, how has that evolved over time? And you said uh, – or you, you, you write that the issues have changed but the general – uh, consensus is that for people is, yes, I like free speech until you confront me with this example where I personally find this speech offensive. What were some of the issues in the 60s and 70s where that was uh, that has evolved. Right. So um, so it changes some among students and also changes um, uh, among sort of uh, parts of the American population more generally. So for uh, in the 50s and 60s, for example, um, uh, lots of Americans, including students, but also adults, um, uh, were not very sympathetic to communists. And so if you said, um, do you support free speech? They'd say yes. And they'd say, well, what if you bring a communist to campus? And they're like, well, no, not one of those. Um and then that faded away. And then in the 70s and 80s, um, people were perfectly happy to hear from uh, communists, for example. Um, but then they didn't want to hear from racists. And so if you characterize speech as, as being uh, uh, racist, then they would say, uh, well, that's very troubling. We probably shouldn't have that kind of speech. Um, and But there's lots of other categories of speech where people react um, uh, differently to as well. So if you ask them, for example, should you bring somebody um, who's going to talk about atheism uh, to campus, um, lots of people um, start getting nervous if you, if you say things like that. If you um, ask them about things that are um, sexually explicit, um, people will um, get uh, nervous about that. And, and that's changed a little bit over time um, as to which one of those things people find particularly upsetting. Um, there was a period of time when you talked about, um, well, what if you brought somebody who um, uh, was a strong Muslim to campus and critical of American policies in the Middle East? And a lot of Americans backed off of that in the years after 9-11, um, uh, for, for example. So at the moment, it's the racist or the group that um, a lot of college students and other Americans are particularly hostile to or things that might be characterized as racism. Um, and that's been a pretty unpopular group for uh, uh, quite a while now. Where do we see the most, uh, I, I suppose, ideologically driven opposition to free speech within the academy? That is to say, uh, strains of academic work that point to speech is not something that we ought to value. Right. So I so I think it's still a minority view, but there are certainly parts of academia where um, – uh, a commitment to uh, what we might think of as traditional liberal values of, of tolerance and the and the value of free speech um, um, are, are viewed as as um, uh, flawed and, and mistaken. And um, a lot of those are rooted uh, uh, people who articulate the views and hold them um, um, are found in humanities departments, um, uh, comparative literature, English departments, um, gender studies, um, and and the like. Um, in part, in those places. Um, there's been a great deal of influence from postmodern, post-structuralist movements that have emphasized the way in which um, uh, the way people talk and language they use can reinforce um, uh, the social power uh, imbalance uh, in society. Um, and so they become particularly concerned that um, speech is a weapon um, that people have used over time um, to oppress others within their own societies. And as a consequence, they're very um, skeptical of speech. I think um, in other parts of campus, you'd find uh, what we might think of as much more traditional civil libertarian views that um, think that um, speech is, um, can sometimes be used as a weapon, but more generally, it's a tool. It's a tool for human progress, and so it needs to be protected. 
Attorney Bob Bauer, he spoke at the Cato Institute not too long ago, and he a point that really stuck with me that he made was the idea that our uh, support for freedom of speech, and this has to be especially true on, on campus, should not be rooted in some view that, well, if we just talk about this enough, the correct view will emerge and that everyone will adopt the correct view. He, uh, you know, cause, because I see, the at least on long partisan lines, support for free speech, at least the, the way I you know, take it in in, in various uh, media outlets, it seems to be – it depends on whether or not you think you're the group who thinks their speech is going to be infringed. Yeah, no, I think people always when they when they imagine that it'd be a good idea to suppress speech, they always imagine it's somebody else's speech that's going to get suppressed. And um and, and usually they um add to that at the view that uh, everybody else's speech or the particular somebody else's they want to suppress, um their speech isn't very valuable. Um unlike my speech, my speech is really valuable. Um and and and, and often it's because well those people are wrong. Yes, yeah, so those people are, So it's not so it's not that important. Right. So so they're wrong, they're dangerous. Uh, um, uh, in various ways, and so right. So, what have you lost by by um, cutting them out? And so, so I think I would emphasize um, uh, two different um, kinds of arguments about that. One is, um, and that's why I try to elaborate um, in in the book as well. I mean, one is I think that in in the long term, um, we should recognize the only way in which we make progress um, as a species is by. Um, uh, the willingness to be skeptical of ideas, including our own, um, and to hold them up to scrutiny. Um, and it may well be that that in the end of the day, we think we are right, and we're pretty confident we're right. Um, but the but the best way of knowing that we're right is that we are willing to to grapple with people who disagree with us um, and and see our arguments. Um, uh, being contested um, by people who um, are willing to put really good arguments against us. And that may lead us to be even more convinced we're right. It may lead us to persuade people, maybe not that particular opponent, but persuade people in the middle um, uh, to uh, come over to our side. And we may also learn mistakes that we've made along the way. So even though we think we're basically right, we may also realize, oh, but there are parts of what I'm trying to do here that, that's mistaken. And so how can I fix that and make it better? Um, and, the, and the only way we're going to make that progress as if we're willing to um, uh, actually hear uh, critical arguments, even arguments that are critical things that we um, are, are very convinced about and, and that we think are really important. The other thing we should worry about, though, is, is um, empowering censors. Um, that uh, even if you imagine, for example, that that model is not true, or even if you are convinced that, well, I I know the truth, um, and so uh, and and the other person is definitely wrong, and so we're not going to lose anything important um, by suppressing the other person. Once you empower somebody to do the suppressing, um, then you've you've armed them with a very dangerous weapon, and and all of our experience, including our experience in the United States across our history, and including our experience on college campuses um, across our history, is once you've armed somebody with that weapon that they're allowed to suppress ideas um, that are obviously uh, wrong or obviously offensive or obviously um, dangerous, um, they very quickly start using that against lots of people, um, including often the people that thought it would be a good idea to suppress speech in the first place. So from the outside looking in, um, universities you know, that are supposed to be these bastions of, of debate and open inquiry and uh, having substantial discussions about uh, really issues with issues that don't have 
that allow the baggage associated with those issues to sort of sit in the background while we actually debate this substantively. Um, it seems like they're actually more worried about things like liability or uh, reg- federal regulation or having something that they've allowed to go on being branded in some particular way in the in the public sphere and not so much about celebrating uh, liberal values like free speech. Sure. I think those are genuine concerns, right? I mean, universities aspire to take ideas very seriously. Um, and and fundamentally, the reason why I was attracted to spend my career in a university um, is because I think there's a lot of truth to that aspiration, that in fact, universities can be places uh, where t- people take ideas um, very seriously um, and are willing to explore them um, in ways that really you can't find anyplace else. And and I at least in, enjoy that environment a great deal. Um, and, and I've gained a lot from from being able to um, be at places um, that allow that. Um, but, you know, you don't want to blind yourself to um, the defects uh, in that. So there are um, certainly other competing concerns that university administrators worry about, things like liability and branding and marketing and, and you know, uh, and university administrators have always been worried about that. So you, you can find cases from uh, the 19th century and early 20th century or, or last week uh, in which university presidents are trying to suppress somebody's controversial speech precisely because they're worried about, well, what would the parents think? Um, and they won't send their kids to school and pay tuition anymore um, if they get wind of this embarrassing thing that's happening on our college campus. So there's always those competing concerns that um, um, get in the way. Um, and they, of course, they're also lots of occasions in which people are not taking ideas nearly as seriously as they should. Um, you know, they're distracted by you know, college sports or the latest party, um, or they're distracted by the fact that that they're just convinced their ideas are right or they have a political cause they want to support, and so they're not really willing um, to be as skeptical and as open um, to interrogation as, as they ought to be. Um, but so those are warts um, on universities. Universities are imperfect. Um, but the aspiration is a really attractive one. And, and what I think we want to do is try to encourage universities um, to meet their aspirations as, as much as possible. A huge amount of federal funding flows into universities. A huge amount of state funding flows into universities. And I can imagine being a university administrator who says, look, I need to placate the audience, the the customer, if you will, of of the parents and these young people, but I also have to be compliant with uh, you know various federal mandates. I have to be concerned myself with uh, marketing to keep the keep the money flowing into university coffers. And I can imagine uh, many university administrators saying, "Look, we've got to look like we're doing this right." Uh, and yet not necessarily hold a substantial commitment to the actual ideal. No question. And that's, that is the challenge. And um, uh, I have a great admiration for people who are willing to be university leaders um, precisely because there are always those temptations and difficulties that um, move them away from the mission. At the, at the same time, I think it's crucial that university leaders um, at least – um, have as their starting point an understanding of what the mission is, um, and they don't always. Um, so I'm very fortunate at Princeton University that, that we have a college president who I think understands very well that what the mission is of, of um, trying to advance ideas and to think about things skeptically. We have an alumni base um, that understands that that's basically what the university um, is doing, and so um, they're to- relatively tolerant of controversial things happening on campus, and we have a big endowment so we can weather the storm if something really embarrassing happens 
happens and you start worrying about what's the, maybe the consequence um, on the budget. Um, there are lots of universities that are not so well situated. They have to worry a lot more about, well, what will the state legislature think? Um, what will the tuition-paying parents think? Um, and that leads people to make compromises. Um, so I, I think and, – and, you know, and so compromises are also going to be somewhat inevitable, right? We're never going to totally avoid that, and, and I recognize that. Um, but you want to be able to put countervailing pressure on those administrators to try to um, pull them back um, toward the higher ideals, um, even though they're going to be constantly pressured uh, to compromise those ideals. And in part, you want to be able to try to make an argument, as part of why I wanted to write the book, um, to communicate to a larger public audience, including one of parents and alumni and, and politicians um, and voters, um, that, that they should appreciate what universities are all about. And universities, at the end of the day, are about um, thinking about controversial ideas. Um, and as a consequence, I hope that they will come to appreciate um, that sometimes they will be offended by what's happening on a college campus. Um, but nonetheless, all things considered, uh, universities are important and valuable despite the fact they sometimes have these moments of controversy. I'm sure this is not the case at Princeton. And I'm sure that you wouldn't tell me if it were the case at Princeton. <laughs> but are there university administrators who just do not view that sort of uh, the the liberal ideal of, you know, this vibrant debate on campus and advancing ideas, that they just don't view that as the market that they're in, as, as promote, as this is the product? I think there, I think there's certainly examples of that. And we've, we've seen examples of it um, that have come up in the midst of current, con uh, various kind of controversies that have occurred on campuses lately, where we've seen instances of administrators who are clearly much more concerned about, um, uh, you know, sometimes advancing a particular political mission, for example, and as a consequence, aren't very interested in having um, those political commitments challenged. Are they really concerned with advancing um, the uh, shiny, attractive, parent-friendly brand of a of a college campus, and they don't want to see that tarnished by some kind of uh, embarrassing uh, event um, on on campus? Um, and uh, you know, sometimes people are attracted into administration or find themselves in administration coming out of backgrounds where they haven't thought very deeply about those principles that universities are fundamentally committed to. It wasn't really part of um, their training or their prior um, uh, work experience or educational experience. And then suddenly they find themselves in the midst of one of these controversies. And so their instincts um, are instincts of um, – uh, trying to make the controversy go away <laughs> rather than thinking about the the fundamental mission of the university. And so I think it's important that we, in thinking about selecting administrators and college leaders as well, that um, we be trying to get those people to be thinking carefully about what the university mission is when things are kind of calm and you're not in the middle of a controversy so that they have a firm appreciation of what the core values are. And then when you're confronted with a controversy, uh, maybe you'll be a little better positioned to uh, deal with it in a reasonable way. Something that you said at the event uh, really uh, stuck with me, and that's the idea that the debates that students have today, and you know, some of these are, are uh, debates by proxy or debates by uh, <laughs> the, the numbers you can get behind you at, at, a, at a given time. So they're not real debates in that way. They're not intellectual debates. But those debates that are being had on campuses are the kinds of debates that will be had in courts and um, in the future. And that really seems like, are we in as bad a state as so many people would uh, like us to believe with respect to defending uh, the value of free speech on campus? 
Well, right. I don't think we should take anything for granted. And um, I, you know, I worry about things I see on college campuses, but I also worry about things I see in American society uh, more generally. So um, it's the same dynamic that leads people to um, flip out because they see a controversial speaker on campus that also leads people to get um, very agitated when they see a football player kneeling uh, during um, the national anthem, for example, right? It's a, it's a um, unwillingness to tolerate the fact that other people um, hold different ideas and express them in ways that, that you find uh, discomforting. And so it's a challenge for all of us um, to uh, try to overcome those those feelings and to recognize um, that we do, in fact, have disagreements um, and that we need to tolerate each other's disagreements and learn how to work together um, despite those disagreements. And one of the places where we learn those lessons um, are on college campuses, uh, where students can and uh, experience um, uh, a diverse set of people uh, with very different ideas from their own. They can hear arguments and they can learn how to um, grapple with those arguments, make decisions about them, reason uh, together with people and, and learn to tolerate, um, but nonetheless work with uh, people they disagree with. And if universities are doing their job, um, they ought to be um, creating environments in which people can learn learn those lessons. And what you'd worry about instead is that you send people out into the world that uh, the lesson that they learned in college is I ought to be uh, shouting down uh, people I disagree with and refusing to hear them, um, or the lesson I learned is that hate speech um, isn't really free speech. Um, and those people eventually become voters, um, eventually they become citizens, and eventually they become political leaders, and they become judges. Um, and if uh, campuses become firmly convinced that um, uh Free speech ought to be significantly uh, restricted compared to what the Supreme Court currently thinks uh, free speech means under the U.S. Constitution. Um, then it will not be surprising if um, a decade or two from now um, judges um, start moving in the same direction um, and start um, restricting speech and moving away from the legacy um, of free speech protections that we've been building up over the last century. Ilya Soman uh, says that, you know, for every Milo Yiannopoulos or Ann Coulter speech that gets torched or causes or inspires violence uh, among some part of the student body or other people, uh, he says that, you know, 99 speeches, speeches like Ilya Soman, for example, the go off without a hitch. Although if you're protesting a speech by Ilya Soman, uh, it's uh, I don't know. You're just mean. It's, but but do you, do you share that view that you know maybe this problem actually isn't quite as bad as we think it is, and this is a small group of very committed individuals who, um, uh, you know, just have nothing better to do. Uh, so I think the problem is overplayed. There are people who have a stake in overplaying the problem, and and one of the messages I try to communicate to. Uh, for example, conservative parents and alums of universities who are worried about uh, what they hear is happening on college campuses um, is that, look, there are, there are some genuine problems um, on college campuses. There are people who sometimes behave badly um, on college campuses. Um, but the fact of the matter is most of the time things go fine um, and uh, people are capable of expressing disagreements and, and grappling with them um, that 99% of the time speeches will not be shouted down um, uh, and and the like. Um, and so we should 
we should address the problems when they arise, um, but we shouldn't become too pessimistic about what's happening on college campuses uh, in general. Um, I think there may be some specific campuses that are having uh, particularly severe troubles and they have to work their way um, uh, through those troubles. But, but I think in general, I'm, I'm an optimist about uh, what the future of of American higher education um, is like, um, but that optimism is tempered with the notion that uh, we have to take active measures to make sure that we reach that attractive future. Um, that we shouldn't panic about where we are now, but we also shouldn't be lackadaisical about it. Keith Whittington is author of Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 